0: Well, turn with me, please, this morning to Romans chapter 11 in your New Testament scriptures, Romans chapter 11. We've been making our way through the central section of Romans for a couple of months now, Romans 9, 10, and 11. They have a distinct subject matter. They're, they shouldn't be cut off from the rest of Romans, but you can sense Paul answering a specific concern here, a specific question we come now into Romans 11, where Paul begins to pull a lot of the threads together from what he has been saying thus far in this center section. So let's begin Romans 11 today, and let me read verses 1 through 12. Romans 11, beginning at verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Teach us your word. We pray each Sunday at this time, even when we open the service, we pray again. Lord, teach us your word. Show us Christ. May he be precious, and may we feel, sense, yield our wills to you in obedience to be sent out as your people, to to take your good news out, to to be the image of God in the fullness of Christ as you've called us to be. Forgive us of our sins, our errors, our blunders, our ignorance, our disobedience, and Show us your grace, we humbly ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I didn't see that coming. Have you ever said those words at the end of a movie or a book or maybe even a sporting event? I fell asleep last night, Clemson was in the lead, I woke up, no surprises, that's always good. That's not always the case, is it? Or I still remember, it's been almost 20 years now, 2004, a Lakers playoff game, where they ran a play with four-tenths of a second remaining. And the NBA won't even let you attempt the play if there are three-tenths of a second left, but with four-tenths of a second, they were able to inbound the ball. A player caught, shot, and made the basket to win the game. Totally unexpected outcome. You have the same thing in literature. So I'm finishing up Return of the King and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings many times in those books. The good guys are facing impossible odds. And just when it looks like they're going to lose the battle and everybody's going to die and darkness is going to completely overrun the world, you'll have some surprising turn of events. Maybe Gandalf appears or some other miraculous event happens and pushes back the darkness. It's like the appearance of the sun in the middle of a storm. It's just a happy turn of events that nobody expected. Well, that's how Romans 11 begins. There's a turn of events. There's a turn of focus. There's a turn of emphasis that we probably wouldn't have expected or predicted based on what Paul has said thus far. I mean, how did chapter 10 end? We had this string of Old Testament citations highlighting Israel's culpability, Israel's obstinance, Israel's responsibility for their unbelief. In fact, the very last citation of verse 21 calls them a disobedient and obstinate people. And based on that ending, you might draw a negative conclusion about Israel and her future. But notice how Paul begins chapter 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. So despite Israel's present unbelief, God has not rejected them. You might have thought Paul would say, yes, he has. But Paul says, not at all. He takes a hard left turn that nobody saw coming. Uh, One commentator writes this, Paul refuses to admit the logical conclusion. Despite her disobedience, Israel remains the people of God. Now, in what sense? Paul will explain in the rest of the chapter. But Paul wants to now take us into the future. Paul wants this to show us the hope that's on the horizon in the unfolding of God's salvation purposes. And not only is this to give us hope, but it's also to speak to a need in his congregation. Remember, the church at Rome has become a majority Gentile congregation. And that was probably a shift due to the Jews being expelled from Rome for a period. Now it's majority Gentile. And they can be tempted by the anti-Jewish sentiment that exists among Roman thinkers. Jews weren't looked well upon by Romans. In this congregation that Paul writes to, they could be tempted to adopt some anti-Jewish thinking. Namely, that God has changed his mind. That God has rejected his people. But Paul surprises us because he lays out how God's grace is still at work among Israel. And how through this grace, God is bringing salvation to many. And so as we think about God's grace at work, God's grace among the nations, that will help us see God's grace at work in our church and in our lives. So let's look at the passage today, which shows us the surprising power of grace. And Paul highlights three works. In particular, First, grace operates where we can't see. So Paul begins this chapter with the declaration, God has not rejected his people. And then he goes on in the verses to follow to tell us this is how he knows this is so. Here's his proof. And what's his first piece of evidence? Paul's own salvation. He writes in the rest of verse 1, I am an Israelite myself a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Obviously, God is still saving Israelites because he saved Paul. And why would God continue to save Israelites? The beginning of verse 2 states, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. We've seen that word already in Romans, back in chapter 8, in the discussion of election. God chose Israel. God elected them. He said, I'm going to work through you to bring salvation to the world. And as God tells Israel often in the Old Testament, he's working primarily through them, and he's doing it because he's a God of grace. Deuteronomy reads, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loves to work through small things. God loves to work through surprising things. God loves to work in a way that goes contrary to our expectations. That's what he did for Israel. That's what he's done for us. And so Paul is saying, look, if God chose Israel graciously, then human actions cannot cause him to reject her. There may be discipline, but there cannot be final rejection. Why? Because the very choice was grounded in God's grace. In fact, the phrase Paul uses here, God did not reject his people, it echoes two Old Testament texts, Psalm 94:14 and 1 Samuel 12:22. And Psalm 94 that simply promises, "For the Lord will not reject his people." a theme that comes up over and over in the psalms look at what we're facing look at the exile look at the discipline and God assures his people i haven't rejected you and first 12 is probably excuse me first samuel 12 is probably a little more familiar to us it comes from that context where samuel is interceding for israel after they asked for a king and remember what did god say when they were asking for a king they're not rejecting you they are rejecting me But God says, despite that, I will not reject them. God's people might reject him, but he will not reject them. Because he's made a covenant. And he's faithful to his promises. So Paul starts there. Look at my salvation. Look at the covenant God has made. And then he starts reasoning out to a larger reality. Again, the Old Testament helps him. But follow his thinking here. Look at the rest of verse 2. Paul writes, don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This comes from 1 Kings 18 and 19, which I understand was covered in the Sunday school class just a few weeks ago. 1 Kings 18, Elijah's battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. God shows up in this powerful manner. He incinerates the sacrifice, one that had already been drenched. He proves that he alone is God. Then in the next chapter, 1 Kings 19, Jezebel Jezebel declares, okay, I won't stop until Elijah is dead. And so he flees to the wilderness and he prays, I have had enough, Lord, take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Wow, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Maybe... Events in your life have gone that way before. God seems so powerful and active and real. And then you're wondering, what is going on? Well, that's what Elijah goes through and then pleads to the Lord with the words Paul cites here. He is convinced in light of this apostasy in Israel, the opposition of the authorities. He must be the only one left serving God. And that's where God assures him, No, Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not alone. In fact, you're part of a great company. And so Paul, looking at his own salvation... And understanding God's ways of salvation, looking at how God works in history. He concludes in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul declares God is still at work among his people and he is working through his remnant. So so once again, just like he did at the end of chapter 9, He says, there's this remnant here, and it's proof of God's faithfulness. He didn't abandon Israel. He didn't throw them away. There is still a remnant. And if there is a remnant, that's a sign God is still at work. But I want you to notice a shift in emphasis here. At the end of Romans 9, he's focusing on God narrowing Israel down and saying, okay, well, there is at least still a remnant. Here he's going to take the opposite approach. And he's going to say, if there's a remnant, that means not just that God is barely at work, but that God is powerfully at work, and there is a sign for the future here. Okay, how do you get that reasoning? Well, follow Paul's logic here. Okay, yes, only a remnant of national Israelites is currently being saved. But a couple things factor into Paul's thinking. One, Paul's already shown us God is expanding the definition of what it means to be an Israelite. So the number of Israelites being saved is actually quite large. But not only that, when Paul refers to the remnant here in this section, where where he focuses on national Israel, that's a sign he's also starting to look to the future. Notice that phrase, at the present time. We could translate translate that woodenly as at the now time, or in the now time. And that's a phrase Paul uses when he discusses the end times. So Paul is saying right now, in the end times, there is a remnant according to God's grace. And remember, what, what got Paul's anguish started at the beginning of Romans 9? The time of fulfillment has come, and Israel appears to be missing out. Finally, Paul can get to the conclusion here and say, no, they're not. The time of fulfillment has come, and there is a remnant. That means God is still working through Israel. And why do you keep a remnant around so that you can then grow it into something greater? So what we saw in the Old Testament I'm going to cut down that tree but I'll leave that stump and out of the stump will grow a shoot and that will grow into a fantastic tree. So there's proof for Paul that the God's word has not failed. And why has that word not failed? Because of grace. Verse 6 reads, "And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace." God's grace means that he doesn't reject his people even when they reject him. And if he shrinks them down to a remnant, it is so that he can then show grace to others. And as we will see before this passage ends, verses 11 and 12, there is hope that he will return to Israel once again and show grace to them. He's already doing it at the present time, and who knows what he'll do in the future. So what does that mean for us? Okay, that's a lot of stuff about Israel. But what does it mean for us? Well, here's my question. How does Paul know that there is a remnant chosen by grace? Has he met these other believers? Okay, maybe. How did Elijah know that there was a remnant? Because God told him so. And so it's a nice reminder that God's Grace operates even where we can't see. We know that God is gracious. That means that he is at work. And so maybe you look at your life, or maybe you look at your family, and you just wonder, okay, is God's grace still at work? Maybe there's even been times in your life you're like, oh, God was doing all this stuff here. feels like we're in a dry season here. Well, Sometimes grace works, and God is the only one who sees it. And sometimes grace works, and what we see looks like the exact opposite. After all, that's exactly what was happening in Elijah's life. God was at work, and it looked like the exact opposite. What do we need to learn? We need to learn what Jacob learned. You don't have to scheme, and you don't have to fight, And you don't have to scratch and claw to obtain what God has promised by his grace. So God made promises to Jacob before he was even born. But what do we see that trickster doing in his life? Trying to manipulate everything to make it work out. Till God finally assures him, hey, I've got this. You don't have to scheme for it. Now can you wrestle with God for it? Sure, that's what he did there at the brook. I want this blessing. And he wrestled with God there. You can go to God for what you're praying for, but you don't have to scheme about it. You don't have to cook something up. What God promises by his grace, he will provide. Why? Because he is with you. He has promised to remain with you. With Christ, you are never alone. And that applies for your life. That applies for our church. So as Elijah learned, as Paul was learning, our church is not the only group. Our tribe isn't the only tribe, so to speak. God is at work in his world. And he is at work because he's a God of grace. So grace works even when we can't see it. Now, second idea then, grace warns us of danger, coming into verses 7 through 10 here. And these verses are one of those both and sections. So, on the one hand, it seems to throw a little bit of a monkey wrench in Paul's train of thought about the work of God's grace among the Israelites. But at the same time, it still highlights the reality of God's grace before transitioning into verses 11 and 12, which look hopefully towards the future. So, there's both sobriety and hope in this section. So, let's follow Paul's train of thought. He begins with a question... What then? It's almost as if he's saying, okay, what's your next concern? And this imaginary dialogue partner might say, well, a remnant is good, but again, what about those who aren't believing? And this is where Paul answers soberly. You're right. What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. This is what we reviewed in chapters 9 and 10. Israel zealously sought the law and its righteousness, but they couldn't obtain their goal. They got going down the wrong path, seeking the right goal, but in the wrong way. But, God, but, but Paul then makes a statement that highlights God's grace, both God's grace and God's justice. The end of verse 7 reads, The elect among them did obtain it, but the others were hardened. So despite Israel's misguided pursuit of the law, there are still those who saw that Christ is the culmination of the law and they received his righteousness. And why did they see this? Because of God's electing grace. It's because they were acting ignorantly. It's because they were acting in unbelief that God showed them mercy. And it wasn't because, oh, they just don't know any better. It's, this is the only thing that will work. Because of their ignorance, because of their unbelief, mercy alone will save them. Because they are sinners, I must show them mercy. And so God graciously showed mercy to a remnant of Israelites, despite the fact that they didn't deserve it. And the rest, well, Paul writes in verses 8 through 10, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. They wouldn't listen and God stopped their eyes, or their ears, excuse me. They wouldn't see and God blinded their eyes. They've become like Pharaoh. See, see how the roles have been reversed? Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh refused to listen to Moses. God hardened his heart. And when we ask, "Okay, well, which came first, God's hardening or Israel's refusal? Scripture speaks to both. On the one hand, nothing happens outside of God's sovereign control. God isn't passive. And at the same time, God warns his people, don't cross that line. You cross that line of disobedience and you refuse to listen and you won't be able to listen. You spurn my mercy and I will withdraw my mercy. And so we see from this passage that God's grace warns us of danger ahead. And warns us so that we will seek his mercy. And so God disciplines Israel, yes. Why? Because he cares about a restoration. So there's not this idea here in Paul that, you know, he's thinking badly of the Jews and as a people group, they could even be treated badly. It's God has disciplined them, but that's because he cares about their restoration. Some of these passages that Paul cites from are also used in context of Christ's rejection, seeing an obstinacy there that leads to danger. And so Paul warns them not to go down that path. Good reminder for us as a church, perhaps among us, there might be those who are not yet a Christian, and I would just say don't put off believing. Salvation is good. Don't delay entering into that covenant with God. Maybe broadly as a Christian, something in your life, just recently God has really been trying to get your attention. Don't ignore that voice. Don't push that voice away. Be quick to act when God is at work because his grace warns us of danger for our good. And then lastly this morning, grace increases beyond our expectation. So Paul comes back to his hopeful outlook in verse 11. Again, I ask. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? So as we just saw, Israel's in a trap. They've trapped themselves in the situation, and now they can't get out of it. So is that the end of them? Is God done with them? Or did God cause that because, hey, I just need to get rid of Israel, so let me harden them so I can get rid of them? Paul answers, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So God has a present purpose for Israel's unbelief, and there is a future hope for her. Let me just touch on both of those quickly before we close. Again, God's present purpose for Israel's unbelief. This is what we looked at when we went through Romans 9. God has shrank Israel down to a remnant. But that is so that he can show mercy to many Gentiles. And that was Israel's job. They were God's servant. They were to be a light to the world. And when they failed in that vocation, when the light turned in on itself, God says, okay, I'll make sure it happens. My mercy and my grace, ultimately, they don't depend on human actions. I'll make sure this light gets shown to the world. And God disciplined Israel for that disobedience, but that discipline doesn't result in final rejection. In fact, as verse 11 tells us, as Gentiles are being saved, that is one of the means God will use to restore Israel. So Paul uses the language in verse 11 of making Israel jealous. In other words, as Israel sees the Gentiles participating in God's salvation through Christ, they will see that that is the good way and likewise exercise faith In Jesus. Now, in all honesty, this is not a vocation the church has always fulfilled well. So there is anti-Semitism very early in the church's history. You see strong elements of it in European church history. And of course, the anti-Semitic attitudes and actions of the Second World War, those were not always condemned by Christians or the church so it's a good reminder to us of our job, of our vocation to show that light in such a way that others will come and see that the Lord is good. We take a posture as a church towards outsiders and act in such a way that what we have is seen as worth having. I mean, at least as much as humanly possible. Because God's grace coming to us doesn't mean that God is done with others or with outsiders. Rather, our mission is to reflect back out to those in need. And that's God's present purposes. And then second, Paul highlights the future hope for Israel. Now this will become a larger topic in the next section, but but he introduces it in verse 12 when he writes, but if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So great riches of salvation come to the world now because of Israel's unbelief. But there might be even more riches in store when they are fully included. So despite all this language in these chapters of hardening and obstinacy, and destruction. God can change that. He can reverse that and save many Israelites. And that's what Paul holds out there as a hope, that they're destined for a great reversal. And my last question would be, why is Paul hopeful of this? Maybe because he sees in Israel something that reminds him of Jesus. Right now, Israel has been cast away. Why? For the sake of the world's salvation. And so the promise of restoration remains. In fact, verse 15 uses the language of resurrection to describe her restoration. You see how that fits what God was doing with Jesus. He was rejected. Why? For the sake of the world's salvation. And he has been raised. So that we might have life. And that just plugs right into the way the Old Testament often reasons. Sometimes when you read the Old Testament, I think of Isaiah or like a Daniel 7. You can't always tell the difference between the Savior of God's people... And God's people themselves. That's one of the reasons sometimes those Old Testament passages are read by Jews. Not as a description of Jesus, but as a description of Israel. There's a reason for that. Sometimes you can't tell the difference. So sometimes in Isaiah, Israel is the servant. But at other times, Israel can't possibly be the servant. Why would God speak that way? So that we could see the connection between the Savior and the Savior's people. And that from this faulty servant will arise the ideal servant to do for Israel and the world what they can't do for themselves. And so again I say, our attitude towards unbelievers, especially those who are traditionally marginalized and oppressed like Israel, should be to hope for their salvation. And through our actions to show them God's grace is really worth having. So we could pray this week that all of us will make someone jealous this week. Probably the first time you've ever been told to leave church and try to make somebody jealous this week. But to do it the way Paul says here, by reflecting God's grace. And will we stumble? Will we sin in how we listen to God or how we fulfill our our vocation? Yeah, we will. But Jesus shows us That God forgives those sins. And God's grace convinces us to listen to him. That he's good. That he's gracious. And who knows how God might surprise us by his grace. So let's give thanks and pray to that end. Father, we do thank you for the surprising power of your grace. I pray this week either in the life of this church as a body or in the individuals here and families here, surprise us this week with your grace. Show us just how powerful it is. So answer some prayer that has been offered up to you, or change something in our lives, especially to sanctify us, to to bring us more into your image, to give us some victory over something, And, and just show us, surprise us with the power of your grace. Lord, make us mindful when we're going about our daily lives, even in moments of stress or tiredness. Just make us mindful of how we can reflect grace back out. How we can show it to those we live with, how we can show it to those we work with, how we can reflect it out into the community. And I pray you would work in the hearts of those around us. I mean, thank you so much for Christ, rejected for us to save many. I pray this week we know him. As Paul prayed in Philippians 3, know him and his power, his grace, his love, his holiness, his mercy, and may you be glorified through your work in us. Forgive us of our sins and answer these prayers we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.